I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Hey, and uh, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I'm Mike Winger. We're going to be talking today about the question of whether or not Jesus was really just a myth made up by people, that there was, in fact, no historical Jesus. Uh, What are the chances that Jesus didn't exist? Um, So I want to mention really quickly before I introduce my special guest, a real live historian who's going to be talking with us about this topic, um, the prevalence modern-day prevalence of the idea that Jesus was a myth, and it's growing in its influence online, at least from my perception it is. It started a while ago with the movie Zeitgeist, the current the current uh, surge in Jesus mythicist stuff, um, and then Bill Maher with his movie Religulous, or Religulous, or how, whatever he pronounces his made-up word. Um, and then, you know, recently there was, not too long ago, there's an article on Big Think where they said there's a growing number of scholars that are questioning the historical existence of Jesus. And we, uh, we are joined today by an actual historical scholar. So he's going to talk about these issues, a historical Jesus scholar by the name of Dr. Mike Lycona. Um, he has a PhD in New Testament studies from the University of Pretoria, which he earned with distinction. Mike's the author of numerous books, uh, one of which, the big one I read, <laughs> the 600-page one. Uh, Mike is, again, the author of those things. He's also been interviewed on uh, by Lee Strobel in his book, The Case for the Real Jesus. In 2017, he's elected to full membership in the prestigious Society for New Testament Studies. He has spoken on more than 100 university campuses, appeared on dozens of radio and television programs, and right here on uh, Mike Winger's YouTube channel as well now. And he's the Associate Professor of Theology at Houston Baptist University and the present President of Risen Jesus Incorporated. Uh, thank you so much for coming, uh, Dr. Mike Lacona. Welcome. Well, thanks, Mike. I'm Happy to be on your your program, man. You've got such a reputation now that uh, everybody's just talking about Mike Winger. <laughs> That's awkward. <laughs> now, serious. Uh, Leighton Flowers, I guess he was one of your guests and pre uh, previously, and he was just saying, "Man, you're just a rock star uh, doing this stuff now." So pretty cool. <laughs> well, I'm just a guy at his home office making videos about Jesus. <laughs> but uh, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have an impact in people's lives and and getting messages from people, um, as I'm sure you have to, of their lives being changed. So, um, okay, here's the first question I have. And let me tell the audience, we are gonna handle questions from mythicists, from those who think Jesus is a myth, at the end of this live stream. So load your questions. We're gonna prioritize just those questions today for this live stream. I wanna hear from you, and I wanna give uh, Mike Lycona the chance to respond to your your thoughts. Um, But first, let me ask you this, because it seems as though there's a disparity between the popular um, the pop level stuff we see online versus actual scholarship and scholarly ideas and thought about these things. So um, what would you say about how scholars of all stripes are viewing this issue of the historicity of Jesus? Well, um, at least in my discipline, New Testament studies and in the discipline of, of history, it, it's not a live discussion. It's just not discussed. In fact, um, just to give you an idea, uh, because it has become somewhat popular on the internet, and the the voices of uh, of mythicists are are loud, even though they're a very small group. Um, here, here's what a couple of current scholars say. Now, one this is Bart Ehrman. Ehrman is an agnostic, probably an atheist. Um, he's gone back, kind of back and forth on this. He's a friend of mine. I like Bart. We get along fine. And here's what he says in his book. Did Jesus exist? Now, just think about it. Bart Ehrman has no horse in the race here. What mattered to him at all if Jesus didn't exist? And here's what he writes. I do not discuss mythicists in the class, since, as I've repeatedly indicated, 
the mythicist view does not have a foothold or even a toehold among modern critical scholars of the Bible. That's Bart Ehrman. Now, here's one, another uh, scholar. This guy's an agnostic scholar, died a few years, just a couple of years ago. His name is Morris Casey, very respected amongst New Testament scholars. In his book, Jesus, Evidence and Arguments or Mythicist Myths, this was the final book that um, Casey wrote right before he died. And he concludes with this, this paragraph. He says, I therefore conclude that the mythicist arguments are completely spurious from beginning to end. They have been mainly put forward by incompetent and unqualified people. Most of them are former fundamentalist Christians who were not properly aware of critical scholarship then and after conversion to atheism are not properly aware of critical scholarship now. They frequently confuse any New Testament scholarship with Christian fundamentalism. The mythicist view should therefore be regarded as verifiably false from beginning to end. And again, Morris Casey was an agnostic, an agnostic bordering on atheism. Let me give you one more. I've got a lot of these, but a lot of them are from people in the past. These are very current. Joseph Hoffman, a New Testament scholar, I'm, he's at minimal and an agnostic, probably an atheist. He earned his degrees at Harvard and Oxford, ended up teaching at Oxford, and, and here's what he writes on mythicist. The disease these buggers spread is ignorance disguised as common sense. They are the single greatest threat next to fundamentalism to the calm and considered academic study of religion, touting the scientific method as their mode op while ignoring its application to historical study. While there is some very slight chance that Jesus did not exist, the evidence that he existed is sufficiently and cumulatively strong enough to defeat those doubts. So what are scholars saying? Well, that's what scholars are saying today. That's what atheist and agnostic historians of Jesus are saying today. Yeah, in fact, it, I get the impression that that by and large, they're not really wanting to even talk about this issue because they feel that in even addressing it publicly, they're they're legitimizing it somehow. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it'd be kind of like scientists entertaining the flat earth theory. You know mm. what I mean? Or other historians entertaining the hypothesis that the Holocaust never occurred. I mean, it's really on that level. Or, you know, uh, someone from NASA engaged in a debate on whether we actually went to the moon. Yeah, and I understand. And I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, and we're for those who are maybe caught up in this Jesus mythicist stuff, or you've been influenced by it. What we're going to do right now is we're going to actually talk about the evidence, not just the scholarly opinions, but the evidence that those opinions are based upon. And so, I'd like to ask you, Mike, to comment on uh, maybe and give us an outline of some of the main lines of evidence we have for the existence of Jesus. Yeah. Well, um, first, but not primarily. First, we do even have some non. Christian writers of the period who mentioned Jesus. So you have Josephus, a Jewish historian who mentions Jesus on two occasions. Um, you've um, one on one occasion either even mentions his brother James and how he was um, how he was executed because he wouldn't deny that his brother was the Messiah. You've got Tacitus, the greatest of all Roman historians, who mentions the execution of Jesus. You have a historian writing in the middle of the second century named Lucian of Samosata. And he mentions Jesus's crucifixion in Palestine. Um, 
Tacitus reports Jesus' execution during the reign of Tiberius Caesar while Pontius Pilate was procurator of uh, Judea. So, I mean, he even places a time on it. Um, now, Tacitus and Lucian, interestingly, are not fond at all of Christianity. So, I mean, they're hostile. In fact, uh, Lucian mocks Christians, and Tacitus call, refers to Christianity as an ev as evil and a mischievous superstition. So again, they're not fond, but yet they of, of Christians, but they they mention Jesus as a historical figure. So you even have some non-Christian sources who mention him. Um, you've got uh, Paul, and Paul's quite early. Paul says that he knew Jesus's brother named James, and he was also aware of Jesus having other brothers. Um, Paul, I mean, here he acknowledges that he persecuted the church. He persecuted the church, and then he converted to Christianity when he believed he had, he had an experience that he was convinced was the risen Jesus appearing to him. Now, here's the thing. Paul lived at the same time Jesus lived. In fact, he lived in the same region and traveled and taught the same region that Jesus uh, had been in. He lived in Jerusalem for a while. He was at the same festivals Jesus would have been at. Um, Maybe he, you could explain that for people who don't know about, what do you mean by at the same festivals? Uh, why would you like assume Jews, that Paul is the at the Jews same had, festivals as Jesus? The Jews had several festivals every year. Uh, the main one being the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he would have been, Paul would have certainly been at that. Um, he was a Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee. He was climbing up the ladder um, of, 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 of Jewish leadership. And so he would have been in Jerusalem during Passover, the same city at the same time, Jesus would have been there and been crucified. Um, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus was crucified um, by the, the, the authorities. So he would have been in the same city at the same time in which this would have occurred. So imagine if Jesus was a mythical figure, fictitious, never existed, then why would Paul, who was persecuting this group, who had lived at the same time as Jesus, been at the same places at the same time as Jesus, knew of, believed Jesus had been crucified by the authorities in the same city at the same time at which he was at, but he was just a fictitious character, and he's going to convert with no better evidence than that? I mean, that's just asking way too much. So you got Paul on that. And again, Paul says that he knew Jesus' brothers. And then you've got the Gospels. And at the very minimum, most scholars today, the majority of scholars, do think that at minimum, Mark and John contain eyewitness testimony, that Mark was reporting what he had heard Peter speak, and that John, most scholars don't think that John was written by John, the son of Zebedee, uh, today. I do, but most scholars don't. Um, but they will at least say that John was either written by a minor disciple of Jesus or whoever wrote John, one of Jesus' disciples, perhaps John the son of Zebedee, was that author's primary source for the information that he has. So now we've got disciples who are reporting about their master who never existed. It's just, uh, you know, so we've got some some decent evidence that Jesus existed. It's really hard to account for the the genesis and and uh, spread of such a movement. We're not talking about a fictitious character from the gray distant past. 
but a, a person who had lived within the lifetime of the authors. Mm -hmm. So um, now I, I can already hear and feel some people who are watching this program right now and hearing you and they're just punching the air. They're like, Mike, none of that counts. Nothing you're saying matters, don't you know? And, they're, and, and they have probably a lot of challenges to many of the different kind of pieces of evidence that you've brought up. And so maybe let's address some of that stuff. So for instance, uh, let's take um, Josephus. You mentioned Josephus, and it is cited by uh, mythicists that uh, Josephus, his, his entry that directly addresses Jesus in detail, that that has interpolation. And most scholars think that it has been altered in the course of history. Now, um, they would then leverage this to say, therefore, you know, you, you have to throw out Josephus. It, it, it just doesn't count um, it, as, as any evidence. So what would your response to that be? Well, that uh, most scholars do agree that uh, the text of Josephus, uh, Josephus mentions Jesus on two occasions, in Book 18, Section 3, and in Book 20, Section 200. Um, there's hardly any debate over Book 20, Section 200. And there, Josephus mentions the stoning of James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, the Messiah. So there you've got one that's virtually undisputed by scholars. And then you've got uh, the, the, the disputed passage, and that's Book 18, Section 63 of Antiquities of the Jews. And um, most scholars do think that the text that we have today, that there is some interpolation there, some doctoring of the text by a Christian, probably in the second or the third century. Um, and the reason being is because Origen reports that Josephus was not a Christian, and yet the text that we have today has Josephus saying that Jesus was certainly the Messiah, and he did all these wonderful um, miracles, and that he rose from the dead. Um, but the text does fit in the context of, of what's going on there. So most Josephus scholars do think that Josephus does mention Jesus there, and a number of things about Jesus, but that a Christian has kind of doctored it up a little bit. So um, instead of saying, you know, he, he claimed to be the Messiah, or some thought he was the Messiah, uh, they just doctored the text to say he was the Messiah. They or, made it more pious. What's that? Yeah. They effectively made um, it more pious. That he rose from the dead, whereas a number of scholars think that what Josephus actually said was his disciples reported that he rose from the dead and appeared alive to them. Um, and so the tribe of Christians remain to this day. Now, before he died a few years ago, Louis Feldman was the leading Josephus scholar in the world. He was not a Christian. He was a Jewish scholar. He had written extensively on Josephus. In fact, in, um, in the 1980s, 89, something like that, he put a book out that was like Josephus scholarship from something like 1939 to 1987, something like that and uh, talked about where Josephus scholarship was at that point and what they thought of numerous things like, the, you know, what about that passage, um, the, the disputed passage. And he said most Josephus scholars do think that Jesus, uh, that Josephus mentions Jesus here. And he said that he, uh, so I emailed him, it was either 2000 or 2001. And I asked him where scholars are now. And he said he hadn't done a bean count, but he said he suspects that it, um, Josephus specialists today would say that uh, Jesus is mentioned by Josephus in both texts. And he says he would put the uh, ratio 
of those who say Josephus mentions Jesus versus those who don't, at least three to one. And he said he wouldn't be surprised if it were five to one. And then uh, Feldman went on and he said that he liked the reconstruction of the passage, the toned down passage um, that was presented by uh, John Meyer of Notre Dame in his book, Marginal Jew, Volume 1. So the majority of Josephus scholars today, even non-Christian ones, even the, 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 the best ones out there, the leading authorities of Josephus, think that Josephus does mention Jesus on both occasions. And the only real debate is, it sounds like the real live debate is over how much alteration was there, not was there an original passage referring to Jesus. So we, so the historicity question never comes up in the discussion of interpreting, you know, what happened to Josephus over time, right? Well, it does come up because he said it'd be at least three to one and maybe five to one. In other words, that mm -hmm. one in the ratio would be those who would say that Josephus did not mention Jesus. Okay, but in the then they then you'd have the second passage, James the brother of Jesus. Yeah, that's that's hardly ever disputed. Yeah. Uh, now, what about Tacitus? Um, some people would would try to rule out Tacitus. Um, you know, as a historian, he he referred to a group called Crestians. And, no, that was uh, that was. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so, so the thing I've heard them say is, um, you know, he referred to Crestians, and this is a, a whole different group. Um, and there's different ways people try to tackle Tacitus and take him off the table. That's one way that I've heard. Yeah, what, what they don't do is they don't continue to read that same verse where it says Christus, from whom the, the group derived or got its name. And now he spells it correctly, Christus. Hmm. Um, and then he says Christus, from whom the group derived its name, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius Caesar uh, while Punctius Pilate was procurator of Judea. So you've got him, even though he messes up on the name, Cre the, the Christians, um, he, spells the, he spells the name Christus, Christ, he gets Christ correct. Mm -hmm. And he says that Christ was executed by Punctius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So there was just a misspelling on his part or misunderstanding with the, the Christians but he got everything else there correct and spells the name of Christ correctly in, in Latin. Yeah. And what, what I uh, understand, and maybe I'm incorrect on this, is that uh, that Christians and Christians were two different alternate spellings. And they found them even on grave markers, uh, demonstrating that it was referring to Christians just both ways. I couldn't comment on that. I don't know yeah. that. Yeah. So um, now what about the uh, the idea, though, that um, that all these extra biblical sources, they're really only getting all their information from the Gospels, um, and that all they're doing is reporting what's in the Gospels. This is something Richard Carrier says. I can actually, let me see, I can read you a quote from him. He said, um, there it is. He says, um, all subsequent history claims are based on the Gospels. Yeah, well, why, why, why does he get the name Christians wrong then? Um, and why would Tacitus, who is, and well, and okay, well, if Carrier wants to say that, then it, again, since uh, Tacitus now is writing around the year 115, well, now you can't have a late dating of the Gospels. Now you're going to have to put the Gospels in the first century if he's getting it from the Gospels. Um, also, um, why would Tacitus, who thinks of the Christ Christianity, as evil and a mischievous superstition, why 
would he be borrowing from the Gospels and using them as his sources? That's insane. So these don't, they sound more like um, ad hoc explanations rather than handling the data fairly. Is that what you're saying? Well, they're certainly ad hoc. And look at the length that, that Carrier has to go to in order to arrive at that conclusion. I mean, nobody's well, going to agree with him on that. I mean, that, but that's the only thing he can say, really, because Tacitus is pretty good evidence. He's the greatest Roman historian. He's mentioning Jesus, who is executed by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And, you know, so how do you do that? Well, you have to come up with some explanation for that. And so you just, well, he's using the Gospels. And we don't have a shred of evidence for that. Okay, well, this might irritate you more, but I'm going to bring another one at you. <laughs> sure. Um, so uh, the Gospels are myth, and they're myth influenced by dying and rising gods that come from other different religious groups that were known at the time. It's just a Jewish version of a Greco euhemerization, where you 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 uh, you or you well, excuse me, that'll come with Paul. Paul's well, anyways. However, they put it, basically, the dying and rising gods. It's all a myth. Um, what would your response to that be? Well, even if the Gospels were doing that, you got Paul, and you still have to deal with Tacitus and Josephus and Lucian, who, who mentioned Jesus. So you still have that. Um, but here, here's, a, here's the thing. Think of who these earliest Christians were. They were pious Jews who debated over matters of the Jewish law, such as whether Christians could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, whether Jewish Christians whether it was permissible for Jewish Christians to even eat in the same room as Gentile Christians, whether Gentile male Christians needed to be circumcised, um, whether Jewish Christians still needed to maintain temple purification rites. Now, if you're going to debate over the minutiae of the Jewish law to that extent, do we really still imagine that these same Jews are going to engage in wholesale borrowing from pagan myths to form the foundation of their own religion? I mean, really? And then you think about this. Um, you can find parallel details in just about anything. I mean, right now I'm, I'm thinking of, of a um, plane that took off of Massachusetts just after nine o'clock one morning. And just after 10, it flew into one of the tallest skyscrapers in the world in New York City between the 78th and the 80th floors, killing everyone on board. Um, of course, you think I'm referring to the 767 that flew into the South Tower on 9-11, but I'm actually referring to the B-25 that flew into the Empire State Building on July 28, 1945. The same floors, in fact, as, this, as the 767 flew into the South Tower. Now, I suppose someone could come along a little bit later and say, well, 9-11 never happened. Because look, it's copying off of that earlier incident. It's too much the same. It's too similar. And besides, I mean, they're just, uh, there's too many clues here to, to see that uh, uh, it makes it simple to recognize that it's just a copycat. I mean, 911, who, who do you call when you have an emergency? 911. Uh, what was the emergency? Well, the U.S. was going through its greatest uh, recession ever at that period. And that was symbolized by the tumbling of the World Trade Center. Um, the... Uh, crash into the Pentagon was symbolic that the U.S. government had declining uh, influence around the world at that point. And the plane that was crashing in the Pennsylvania farm field showed that all of this impacted the average American. So see, you can modern mythologize just about anything, but you got to show there's a causal connection. And that's something mythicists haven't been able to do. Here's another thing. 
um, and why historians aren't uh, persuaded by the the, the uh, parallels in pagan myths, um, because the parallels themselves aren't that similar. So, for example, the closest parallel that predates Jesus is a guy named As uh, Asclepius, uh, a mythical figure lived, uh, I mean, he's mentioned in the Homeric epics, so we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, uh, probably a mythical character. Maybe there's some kernel of his, maybe it was a historical character of some sort, but all it said of, of Asclepius is that he uh, healed people. One occasion he raised someone from the dead. That's it. The closest figure to, to Jesus that postdates Jesus is Apollonius of Tiana. And Apollonius was a traveling itinerant uh, philosopher. He didn't believe in resurrection. He believed in disembodied existence. Uh, there's, I think um, he might have raised someone from the dead. But he really didn't do many miracles or anything like that. What's similar about him is, of course, there are conflicting accounts. Uh, some say that he died. Others say, no, he, he didn't. There was some sort of a apotheosis where he was just disappeared, coming like, kind of like Romulus did. Um, so, but those that say he died, there's one account, one account that says that he came back to life, but only it's known because he appeared to one of his disciples in a dream. And we don't know if that was one of his original disciples or someone a hundred years later. There were other people in the room. They didn't see him because he was in a dream. And that's supposed to be like Jesus. So what you have to do in order to make the um, pagan parallels uh, interesting is you've got to combine a bunch of them. So you take Dionysus, who was said to have divine paternity and who made wine, and you combine that with a uh, Thor whose life was threatened at birth, and you combine that with Asclepius, and then with Apollonius of Tiana, and then you combine that with Hercules, who is said to ascend it into heaven. Of course, it's because he was losing his powers as a hero, so he built a big fire, jumped in it, committed suicide, and there's a report that he was seen ascending to heaven on the horse Pegasus. But we'll get rid of all these details that are so different than Jesus, and we'll only take those ones that are similar, and we take all these figures and make a composite figure to kind of resemble Jesus. And the reason historians aren't impressed by that is because that would be similar today by saying Abraham Lincoln was a tall, uh, lanky politician from Illinois who became president, who served, uh, who was elected to two terms. Uh, Abraham, I'm sorry, John F. Kennedy was a U.S. president who graduated from Harvard. And then there was a character in the popular television series 24 named David Palmer, who portrayed the first black U.S. president. And so you put all three of these together. And what do you have? Barack Obama, a tall, lanky Illinois senator uh, 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 who was elected to two terms as U.S. president, he graduated from Harvard and was the first black U.S. president. Therefore, Barack Obama was a myth. And you'd say, well, that's insane. You've got to take three people, one of which is fictitious, over a 150-year period. And so, well, wait, what are you doing with Jesus? You're taking fictitious and some historical characters, even more than three, that span over a thousand years to get somebody that even partially resembles Jesus. So it just hasn't convinced historians. It only seems to convince those who want to discredit the thought that Jesus existed. Yeah, I'm a little suspicious that what happens is people, they watch like whether it's Zeitgeist or one of these kind of really off the wall movies that 
pushes all these theories with a bunch of false information, just outright lies about who Dionysius was or things like that. And then later upon research, they they find out, okay, some of those didn't work, but I, I really like the idea. you know. Yeah. And for some people, I think that once they like the idea, they're trying to find room for it. Um, I'm not saying that's gullible. everybody. Yeah. It just shows those folks are gullible. Yeah. I still today, every once in a while, someone's like, Mike, have you seen Zeitgeist? What did you think of that? And I'm like, I just, I thought it was a good way to find out what an acid trip is like without taking any acid. It was really, <laughs> I mean, so opinion. low budget and cheesy. So I, and, yeah. and you're right, it's just based on, uh, on, on just outright lies. Yeah. Complete fabrications, complete fabrications. Um, uh, well, let me ask you another one, uh, because Paul, the apostle, uh, he, you know, his letters are so early they're, um, they come before the Gospels. We have like, you know, information in 1 Corinthians 15 that traces back even earlier than that. And um, so obviously Paul is like an important chess piece in this discussion. Um, well, some would say uh, in the mythicist community that Paul, he didn't really believe in a Jesus who died and resurrected on earth. But allow me to quote Richard Carrier, because I think he's an icon. I think he's probably one of the chief icons right now in this community. He says, Paul is ever only talking about a Jesus in outer space that he has conversations with. That's a quote word for word. Richard Carrier, for those who don't know, he, he thinks that, that Paul is envisioning a, a, a spiritual being Jesus who never came to earth, never interacted on the planet earth. And, and later, you know, the gospel writers took this sort of spiritual being and turned him into a human who lived a real earthly life. That's the euhemerization thing I was talking about. Um, so what would you say about interpreting Paul as referring to an outer space Jesus. That's that's weird interpretation. I mean, Paul in the crown jewel of all of his letters, R Romans chapter one, verse three, it says concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. So he places Jesus clearly as a historical figure. And he mentions about this Jesus being crucified by the rulers of our world. So, I mean, it's just, um, again, that's just the real stretch that Rick has to go to in order to try to discredit a really good source about Jesus. I mean, I don't know of anyone who really takes, no scholars other than Richard would, would take that interpretation. I don't know of a single one. Um, yeah, and, and and it seems to come up against some really challenging stuff when you're when you go through the actual the rest of what Paul writes um, to think that he's talking about something that happened in space. Um, this is the kind of stuff that, like, you know, the first time I hear it, I, I'm just like, I can't even imagine how that idea came up. Like, you know, some under, under, misunderstandings you understand them, <laughs> and some and some I just don't get. And this is on that category of, I just don't even understand it at all. Um, well, what would you say for those who would, who would refer to when, when, who would say that when Paul says, you know, he met James, the brother of Jesus, that this is merely referring to James as being a believer in Jesus. He's a brother because he's a believer. Um, you know, and then they would use that as, an, an, you know, to argue against the idea that Jesus had an earthly brother. Yeah, well, well, Paul, in Romans 14, verse 13, he refers to all believers as brothers, all of them. In fact, Matthew has Jesus referring to all believers as brothers. And then on another occasion in Matthew and Luke, uh, actually there are two different occasions uh, in Matthew and another, a different one in Luke, 
Jesus is referring to all of his disciples, the 12 disciples, as brothers of one another. So, um, so um, Jesus and Paul referred to all believers as brothers, and Jesus referred to all of his disciples as brothers. Um, you've got the Gospels and the Book of Acts that all talk about Jesus having brothers. In fact, Matthew says he had four brothers and a number of sisters. Um, and Matthew even provides the names of the four brothers. And guess what? One of them is named James. And Paul said he met with James on several occasions. He says this, uh, mentions two occasions in which he met James in Galatians. So you've got that. Then you've got Josephus saying James, the brother of Jesus, was executed, was stoned. Uh, all of this seems to be corroborating evidence you got from Josephus, you've got the Gospels, um, you've got Paul that mentions the brothers of Jesus, and all of them mention James as one of those brothers. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, you know, that's uh, still, maybe they're just believers. Well, in John chapter 7, it mentions how Jesus's brothers were saying, you know, they didn't believe, they didn't follow him, they were egging him on and, and kind of insulting him. And then it's John says, for none of his, not even his brothers believed in him. <laughs> so how is it that you could have that say that Jesus had brothers and they didn't believe in him? But then after his resurrection, we find in the book of Acts that Jesus' brothers had become believers by that time. Uh, by the time Pentecost had come uh, 50 days after Passover. And then later on in Acts, we find James as the leader of the Jerusalem church. So everything seems to point to, I mean, you've got Josephus, a non-Christian who mentions it, and, and all these multiple independent sources, Paul, Matthew, John, uh, Luke in a different story, the special L material, um, and Josephus. I mean, this is the strongest kind of multiple attestation historians can look for. Well, well said. <laughs> I have a couple of other questions for you. That th these are things that I've I've had people ask me when this topic comes up. Um, so, what would you say to the following question? Um, uh, why is it that, and this is just the question as it's posed to me, uh, why is it we don't have contemporary accounts of Jesus written while he was still alive? And this seems like yeah. a really big deal to people. Um, well, I can understand that. Uh, first, I, I, I'd give a couple answers. One would be that a lot of Christians, as we find you know, throughout the New Testament literature, they thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. So no need to, to, to write that kind of stuff. Besides, only 10% of the population perhaps were literate. They could read. And most of the time in those days, it was only the elite mainly who had books. And so uh, things were passed around word of mouth. And you've got the apostles themselves um, who are, are, are saying that, I mean, they're going around preaching. So why do you want to read a book when you can hear it straight from the person, right? Um, I'd also add that um, a lot of what we have from antiquity is gone. So, um, I mean, we're missing a lot of works out there. Tacitus, again, the greatest Roman historian, when he wrote his histories of Rome, different from his annals, but his histories of Rome go from the year 69 up to 96. And again, the greatest Roman historian. 
So you'd think that would be preserved. Two thirds of it have been lost. And the third that remains is preserved in a single manuscript, uh, medieval manuscript. So, I mean, we're missing a lot. Plutarch wrote more than 60 biographies of which 48, to be exact, have survived. Um, we're missing his biography of Caesar Augustus, which would be wonderful to have. Um, so we're missing a lot of stuff. We're missing Christian writings. Papias wrote five volumes of the Discourses of the Lord, of which only fragments remain. And Papias had contact with an associate, at, at minimal, an associate of one of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle John. Um, so, I mean, we're missing a lot. So the Romans, why don't they mention Jesus more other than Tacitus? Um, well, Roman historians basically concern themselves with Roman history, stuff that would be significant to the Romans. Um, you know, in fact, they don't even mention Pontius Pilate, right? And we know Pilate existed and he was one of the governors, the prefects of Judea during the time of Jesus, reign of Tiberius. And it's not even, he's not even mentioned in any of the Roman sources. We only hear from him from Philo, Josephus, and the New Testament literature. Uh, that is from the first century. Why? Well, because he did mean something to the Jews and Christians. He was cruel to the Jews, and he was an enemy of Jesus. He had Jesus put to death. So that's why the Christians and the Jews mention him of, that, of the first century. So it shouldn't surprise us that we don't really have anything of that period for those reasons. It'd be nice if we did, but we can understand why we don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the impact of Christ, I mean, obviously in some, I should add this, some are thinking they want something written before the death and resurrection of Christ about Jesus, like while he was walking the earth <clears throat> and that, um, I, well, that'd be nice. That'd be nice. I mean, it could be something that you'd like to have. And, um, you know, but historians have to play with the hand that they've been dealt. Um, like I said, we'd like to have Plutarch's life of Augustus. That'd be wonderful. We'd like to have the beginning of Suetonius's life of Julius Caesar. We don't have that. That'd be really nice to have. Um, you've, you've got uh, Josephus. <laughs> you know, he doesn't mention in his autobiography his capture by the Romans. He mentions it in Jewish War, but he doesn't mention in his autobiography. You'd think he'd mention his capture of the Romans as something that was a life changer for him. Um, Ulysses S. Grant, the general for the Union, Union Army for the American Civil War, the victorious one, uh, he wrote two volumes of memoirs of the Civil War. Not once does he mention the Emancipation Proclamation. Does that mean he wasn't aware of it? Um, so just because it doesn't mention it. I mean, you want to be careful not to do an argument from silence to say, well, he's not mentioned, therefore he, they didn't know about it. And again, why would you write about Jesus during his lifetime? Many of the believers, including a lot of his disciples at the time, thought he was, they didn't think he was going to die. They thought that he was going to establish his kingdom here on earth now. Um, so no need to write about him, especially when most people can't read. Great. So there doesn't seem to be that expectation. Uh, you know, it ends up being, like you said, an argument from silence, potentially. Um, I have another question for you. And this would be an accusation I've heard a lot in the skeptics community. And they suggest that the reason why so many scholars are affirming, you know, Christian beliefs or even things like the historicity of Christ, which isn't necessarily a Christian belief. Um, the reason why they're doing it is because many of them have signed statements of faith 
or it's because they're just Christians and they're not, they're just not being honest. And so it creates kind of like a general distrust of scholarship amongst that community of mythers. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Yeah, I'd say, well, um, go tell that to Bart Ehrman. What about Morris Casey? What about Gert Ludeman, an atheist New Testament scholar? What about Joseph Hoffman? Um, what about James Crossley, who's an agnostic New Testament scholar? I mean, you can just go on and on. John Dominic Crossan. I had a, a debate with him last October. Um, pleasant guy. We had a good time together. I really enjoyed him. Um, and, and yet, you know, he's not even certain that there's some kind of person. In fact, he said there's no personal, he told me there's no personal being in his view who created the universe. Uh, Stephen Patterson of the Jesus Seminar, before my debate with him, he told me the same thing. He doesn't believe that there is uh, any kind of personal being who acted as a creator of the universe. They call themselves Christians, but obviously these guys aren't going to have statements of faith, right? Um, so, I'm good. I mean, it just flies in the face of the facts. Anybody can just go to the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature and hang out with thousands of scholars that are there, probably 10, eight, eight to 10,000 scholars who attend it, um, and, and ask them if they're Christians. Ask them if they believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and rose from the dead. And then for all those who say no, which are going to be a significant number of them, ask them if they believe that he was a historical figure. And I'll bet you just about every last one of them will say yes. So if a mythicist wants to find out, let them spend the money, go to the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature. It's in San Diego this year, rent a hotel room. You can go on the SBL website, sign up for the meeting, purchase your ticket to it and go talk to some scholars and, and, and you'll be uh, enlightened about that immediately. So some people will say that, um, that, okay, so there's a historical Jesus, right? But he's nothing like what we read in, in, the, in the Bible, in the Gospels, and in the, in the epistles, nothing like that. We, um, we can safely throw out, uh, you know, oh, pretty much all of the descriptions of Jesus that we see there. Um, but I think that you would take a different perspective. And in your, in your book on the resurrection, you talk about sort of bedrock facts, facts that you say are known beyond any sort of reasonable doubt. Um, what would you say are maybe a list of things that we, we uh, or historians would affirm, these, are, these things are true about Jesus, um, and it's well-evidenced, and it's got this incredible scholarly support? Well, they believe Jesus existed, first of all. They believe that he lived, spent his whole life in Judea, Palestine, um, that um, he believed that he had a special relationship with God who had chosen to chosen Jesus to usher in his kingdom, that he performed deeds that astonished crowds and that both he and his followers considered to be divine miracles and exorcisms. That's not to say that these scholars think that they were divine miracles and exorcisms, but that Jesus did certain deeds that did astonish crowds and that they interpreted them in this sense. Uh, they all agree that Jesus taught in parables, that he ticked off the Jewish leaders because he was criticizing them constantly, and that at the instigation of the Jewish leadership of that day, Pilate crucified him, and that shortly thereafter, his, his, his followers believed that he rose from the dead and had appeared to them. Now, those are things that virtually every historian of Jesus, including agnostics, atheists, Jewish, liberal historians of Jesus, um, 
will acknowledge about him. So it's not enough to say there's at least one guy named Jesus who died by crucifixion, but that's all we know. But rather, there's a lot more data we can gather than that. Yeah, there's um, a lot more, and, and and that's what what a virtual that's what a virtual universal consensus believes. Okay. Um, now you'll find occasionally you'll find some people who, you know, when I say virtual, that's not a hundred percent. So for example, Bart Ehrman doesn't think that Jesus was known as a miracle worker during his lifetime. And he acknowledges being in a minority of scholars. Well, I've talked to some experts, uh, historians of Jesus who have specialized on the miracles and exorcisms of Jesus. And I said, I've asked them, I said, um, so how many scholars do you know of who would say, agree with Ehrman that Jesus was not known as a miracle worker during their lifetime, his lifetime? And both told me, they said they couldn't think of a single one. There might be others, but they couldn't think of anyone else. And so Ehrman might, his, the minority position that he takes, he may be the only member of that group. Hmm. So there are, you know, it's not a hundred percent consensus. Again, there are some a few, a handful who don't even think Jesus existed. Um, so, yeah, but there are, I'm just giving you the thing that a virtual universal consensus are, agree upon. And then there are some other things that many agree upon that, uh, but not a consensus that, um, or you could even say a majority, just not a nearly universal consensus, but that a majority would grant. You could add more things to those lists. Um, so we're going to start taking your guys' questions in the live chat. And so AJ, if you could send those over to me once you're able to. Um, but while we're getting that ready, I want to ask you a question about um, uh, about miracle claims or the miraculous. And there's many who think we can safely disregard or ignore anything that we read historically if it's related to a miracle claim. You can assume that that's not true. And um, what would what would your opinion be about that? Well, first of all, I'd ask him why. Um, and I'd, I'd say, now you're weighing in with your worldview, not with the evidence, because we have evidence for those things, not only for the past with Jesus' miracles, but we have them in the present with miracles that occur today. So what they're doing is they're weighing in with their bias against the supernatural. And I'd say, now again, you're weighing in with your worldview, not with the facts. And the danger of that is very clear. Bad philosophy corrupts good history. I like that. <laughs> um, all right. So um, we've got a bunch of questions coming in. And so I'm going to try and limit it to one question per person. At least I'll start that way. I might backtrack. Those of you who sent multiple questions, and I might backtrack to another one of your questions if I have time. But um, this question is from Cam Spires. And um, the question is, consensus holds that Jesus existed but was not the Christ of the Gospels. E.g., he probably didn't walk on water, feed the multitude. What are your thoughts on this consensus? It's not a consensus. There you go. <laughs> we can answer it's more. It's not a consensus. <laughs> that is not a consensus opinion. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, here's another one. This is from Godless Engineer. Uh, Godless Engineer has a YouTube channel, and he he promotes mythicism. I don't know if he says he's partially persuaded by it or fully or anything like that, but he makes videos promoting it. He says, um, why does nobody reference Tacitus about this persecution of Christians until the fourth century? Well, you've, you've got Tacitus doing it. So 
the, the problem is you have Tacitus. Why don't others mention it? Like, who, who are you thinking of here? Um, why don't other Christians mention it? Um, I mean, you've got Hebrews, right? The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, that mentions some severe persecution that's going on. It's probably not the persecution under Nero, but it, it's talking about some persecution where they're getting their property seized from them. None of the, and uh, they had been, some of them had been thrown into prison. They hadn't had their bloodshed at that point. So they hadn't been executed yet. But the Jewish Christians to whom the letter is written um, have been suffering persecution. So you've got that going on. You've got Tacitus that does mention it. Um, you do have uh, Clement in the book, First Clem uh, the letter First Clement, which uh, the majority of scholars would place somewhere around the year 90 to 95, although there is a significant minority who place it in the late 60s. But either way, um, he mentions, Clement mentions um, the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul and sufferings of other apostles. So you've got that in the first century. It doesn't tie it necessarily to Nero, um, but you've got persecution that's going on there. You've got the book of Acts that mentions persecution by the Jews, the Jewish leadership. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, we do have multiple accounts within the first century um, of persecution of Christians taking place. And then you do have Tacitus who reports it. Isn't there oh, a, uh, by the way, let me, let me, Suet Suetonius also talk about this. Suetonius may mention Jesus. Um, a lot of historians think that he does, but it's a passage that is, can be disputed because it talks about um, at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. And we know that that happened in the forties, the late forties. Um, but there you got that name again, Crestus. And it would have been at a time after Jesus had died, you know, 15 or more years after Jesus had died. So if it's referring to Jesus there, um, you've got Suetonius would have been chronologically challenged at that point. Now, one thing is, is of interest is that even Suetonian scholars, even though Suetonius may be the most accurate biographer of that period, probably is. And he's the biographer that writes more like modern biographers than anyone else in that period, even Plutarch. And um, even though Plutarch's considered the greatest of all the ancient biographers. But he, experts on Suetonius will say, you can't trust Suetonius on his numbers, dates, figures, things like that. So he could have gotten that wrong. So... Um, Suetonius may mention Jesus, but we we just don't know. Mm. We just can't be certain of it. Um, but there was something else that you. Oh, let me let me th throw this too. Um, uh, Josephus. Oh, there was something about Josephus I wanted to mention. I, I I believe. Anyway, it slipped my mind. Maybe it'll come to you. Yeah, I'll ask you another question. Uh, so insects are cool. Oh, 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 I know what it is. I know what it is. So, um, Suetonius mentions um, in his Life of Claudius Caesar, chapter 25, he mentions how uh, Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. Well, that's the only mention of it other than the book of Acts. I think it's Acts 18. So someone could say, well, if Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome, like, like 
the book of Acts says, you think that the Roman, some Roman historian would report it. Well, Suetonius does. It's uh, like two lines, two sentences, and that's it. Not, you would think that Josephus would report it since he's writing the history of the Jews up to his very day. And that would have been a time that would have been several decades past uh, by the time he's writing this. So why doesn't Josephus mention it? Well, he doesn't, I don't know, you know, but you, but there's an instance right there where a historian that we would expect would mention it, certainly mention it. He doesn't mention it. And it's only mentioned by Suetonius. If Suetonius hadn't given us those two sentences, then people would say, ah, Luke just made that up in the book of Acts. It never happened. Mm -hmm. So we just have to be careful about making these sweeping uh, statements um, about these kinds of things, because there's a lot that is just missing from ancient history. We just don't have it today. Um, okay, so Insects Are Cool has a question, and she asks, did Paul hallucinate seeing Jesus? I think that's a common claim. Yeah, that is a common claim. She's right. Um, but, you know, you could look at it and say, well, Paul really doesn't tell us in his letters, Paul on Paul, he doesn't tell us much about uh, his the appearance he had. We got to go to the book of Acts for that. And then there it's mentioned in Acts chapters 9, I think it was 22 and 26. And it does... It's like a vision, but hallucinations aren't group experiences. They're private occurrences in the mind of an individual. They're false sensory perceptions of something that isn't really there. So they're like dreams. So just like I, I can't share my dream with my wife, I can't wake her up and say, hey, honey, I'm having a dream that we're in Hawaii. Go back to sleep. Join me in my dream and let's have a free vacation. You can't do that. If she only. might dream she's in Hawaii but she won't be having the same exact dream I am. She can't join me in my dream because there's no external reality. It's all going on in our head. Same with hallucinations. So uh, even in the book of Acts, it says that Paul's traveling companions saw the light and they heard the voice. They just couldn't understand the voice. So they were part of that experience, which wouldn't be a hallucination. And then Paul later on in Acts chapter 13 talks about Jesus' resurrection being something that happened physically. He quotes from Psalm 16, 10, which says, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And he says, this couldn't have been referring to David because David died, buried, his body decayed. We know where he's buried. But on the other hand, Jesus died, was buried, but his body did not decay. It's referring to Jesus. Um, his body did not decay, inferring that God raised him and, and for that they're eyewitnesses. So if you're looking in Paul and Acts, yes, you've got the description of it that sounds more like a vision, but then you've got his his uh, traveling companions partake in it as well. And Paul is preaching in a sense that he thinks it's bodily resurrection. Now, when we come to Paul on Paul, not Luke on Paul, but Paul on Paul, and he's describing resurrection, we can get to his thoughts about resurrection um, through the back door. So because he doesn't explain Jesus' resurrection in detail himself, because he's not given a narrative of the resurrection, he's writing letters, addressing questions, and in uh, 1 Corinthians, he's answering the question, you know, what's the resurrection like? You know, what kind of bodies are we going to get at the general resurrection? There are some people here in Corinth who are saying, we're not going to be raised from the dead. This life is all there is. You die, that's it. And so Paul goes on, he says, well, Christ is the first fruits in chapter 15, verse 20. And then he says in verse 23, after that, those who belong to Christ will be raised 
at his coming. So when Jesus returns, that's when believers are going to be raised. So what he's saying there is the way Jesus was raised is the way we're going to be raised, only we're going to be raised later on. Um, and then he talks about now. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 20, 21, uh, he talks about how, and uh, 22, that he's in prison, he's facing possible execution. He says he could die and be with Christ or remain on in the flesh. And he says that even though he'd rather be with Christ, it being in the flesh is very much better for them, more fruitful for them. So what he sees himself is when he dies, his view is when you die, you go to be as a disembodied spirit with Jesus in heaven immediately. And then you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he's trying to comfort Christians who have lost loved ones. And he says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Because when Jesus returns, he's going to bring with him uh, those who he's going to bring with him those who have died as Christians. And then the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised first. Well, wait a minute. If he's bringing the dead back with him, how are they going to be raised first? Very simple. The spirits, the disembodied spirits are going to be reunited with their corpses and then they're going to be raised. It's a bodily, physical resurrection, a transform, a resurrection and transformation. And remember, if we're raised as Jesus was raised, and if we're going to be raised bodily, physically, that means Paul thought that Jesus was raised in that same sense. So, no, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a vision that he thought. There you go. Um, I'm sorry, it wasn't a hallucination. Besides, hallucinations don't account for the group occurrences. And Paul wasn't grieving over Jesus' death. He was glad Jesus was dead. Jesus would have been the last person in the universe that Paul would have expected to see or wanted to see. Okay, so there's another question here. This is from Matthew Robinson, and he says, does uh, Dr. Lycona think Mimeses is a mark against the historical Jesus? Did I read that correct? Yeah, well, some would call it Mimesis, but um, um, yeah, that's just kind of like the, that get, would get back to the dying and rising gods, the parallels, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it would it would be affiliated with that. So Mimesis would, I, I don't think that accounts for the resurrection at all. Mm -hmm. And basically your, your main reason is the parallels aren't really parallel. And you, you have to compile these different things and look for little tiny hidden clues. Um, one I heard one person say, it's like people learn to read between the lines without reading the lines. And that's how they find yeah. these. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But yeah, but it's more than that too. Remember I mentioned how you know, the Christian leaders, the first ones were pious Jews, and they're debating over matters of the Jewish law. Uh, you know, they don't want to trans, they want to be careful not to transgress the Jewish law, but yet at the same time, they're going to borrow all these things from pagan myths. Come on. Mm -hmm. um, and then here's another thing. On, you know, before they eat. <laughs> yeah. But they're okay with, you, you know, Greek uh, mythology. So uh, don't you have it. Don't have, don't have a curse word, but go out and commit murder, right? Yeah, yes, swallowing camels. Um, so Utopia Buster 2017, which I always get a kick out of that YouTube name. Um, Utopia Buster 2017 says, can uh, Dr. Lycona please explain processes involved in validating historicity? And let me add to this question a little bit because in my research on Richard Carrier, he starts off some of his lectures by saying the following, um, every single expert in the field of Jesus studies who has written on the validity of the methods they're using 
have concluded they're all invalid. And he says all the methods that you're using to prove Jesus existed, they're invalid methods. So maybe you could talk to us about how you validate the historicity of Christ. Yeah. Well, first, I would say Carrier's wrong there. Um, there was a book written in 2012 called something like uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus something and the Criteria of Authenticity. Uh, Chris Keith and Anthony Ladon are the two co-editors and has some pretty good scholars in it. Um, and a lot of them are calling into question the use of the Criteria of Authenticity. Um, and they give several reasons for it. Uh, there's some postmodernist view in there that just skeptical of history, period. Um, and and the, the other reason is that the criteria of authenticity did not bring about the consensus on Jesus that a lot of scholars of Jesus thought they would. Um, so they, they, they just want to abandon them. But I wrote a review of that book and published it in the bulletin for biblical research. And uh, it's a lengthy critique. I, I do think that um, there's some good things in the book, but um, I think the scholars are way too pessimistic. I mean, there's a lot I could get into with it, okay. But there are, are probably more scholars who embrace the criteria than those who reject it. In fact, uh, you can go and you can watch my debate with John Dominic Crossan from this past October. It's all on my YouTube channel. You just go to YouTube, Type in Mike Lacona, you'll find my channel. And then I think it's still on the first page. Uh, so the debate with John Dominic Crossan, and just listen to his opening statement. I go first, I give a 20 minute opening statement. And I, I even mentioned this thing about the criteria of authenticity, how some, and then uh, rejecting it. And then Crossan comes on and he says, I agree with Mike entirely. You've got to use criteria. And um, so most historians today still embrace the criteria. And one thing I've said, in my critique of that book is, look, do you, I would want to ask those who think the criteria of no, are of no use, um, do you think that Jesus existed? Do you think that he was crucified on the orders of Pontius Pilate? Why do you think this? I mean, these are things that are pretty much undisputed by historians. And why do you think this happened? And what are they going to say? Well, it's, you know, you even have Tacitus and Josephus who mentions the crucifixion or execution of Jesus. It's in multiple independent sources. The reasons you give are going to be the criteria. And mm -hmm. it's not like the criteria are these magical things. They're just common sense. You want to look, you want to appreciate the, you're going to give a little more value to those reports that are early a little more value to those that are eyewitness reports. If it's an eyewitness report and it's early, all the better. Um, you're going to give some weight, some additional kind of weight to an unsympathetic source. If there are multiple independent sources, that's going to be the very strongest kind of thing that you're looking for. If multiple independent sources are reporting the same thing, especially if one of them is unsympathetic, you know, that's going to be very strong. If you reject that, then how can you know anything about the past? So Carrier, I'm, I'm afraid, is just terribly mistaken by saying the majority of scholars are rejecting those criteria, those tools today. So what advice would you give to someone who's perhaps are listening to Richard Carrier? Because the thing is, is I've looked into his content. He casts disparaging remarks upon 
all of scholarship or whichever scholars he disagrees with. He often says that scholars really agree with him on certain issues that it seems like you're saying they don't, at least on the, on some issues. And um, but if you don't know scholarship and you don't know this hi history stuff, but he's your filter, like if Richard Carey is your filter for history, then you think that all the stuff he's saying is accurate. Like what advice would you give to someone who's been influenced by him to kind of come out of that shadow of Richard Carrier? Well, if, if you like Richard Carrier, then read some other skeptics. Read Bart Ehrman, read Gert Ludemann, read Morris Casey, read what they have to say about, about Jesus. Now you're seeing some serious scholarship who are trained not in the classics, but in historical Jesus scholarship. Uh, and there is a difference. When I wrote my most recent book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels, that came out two and a half years ago, um, I dealt with the, uh, like Plutarch quite a bit and some of the others. And I have to admit, my learning curve was very steep, and I would have made some egregious errors if not for uh, two classicists, who um, three classicists, who reviewed my material on Plutarch. And one in particular, who has become a very good friend of mine in the meantime, um, he, he corrected me on a bunch of things and steered me through the minefield. I would have made some terrible errors. I just thought, you know, this is ancient literature. It's around the same time of Jesus. I'm going to, you know, be able to get through this pretty well because I know what I'm doing with Jesus. And no, it's different. And classicists are going to make the same kind of mistake if they think they're coming to the biblical literature and they're just going to know it and know how to navigate through it without any kind of real study in the area. So Carrier makes some egregious errors when it comes to these things. Um, so what I would say to a mythicist who really like Richard Carrier, look, if you want to be a skeptic, read some other skeptics, read some that are, you know, have some great academic credentials and reputation, um, like Bart Ehrman, like Garrett Ludeman, like Morris Casey and, and others, and see what they're saying. Um, and then I, I would also say, look, when I, I don't know how many bona fide scholars there are now in the relevant fields of New Testament studies and history, uh, classicists who would say that Jesus did not exist. I don't know how many there are now. I know just a few years ago, Richard was saying there were seven, including himself. Um, that's not a lot. And none of those seven were widely regarded within their discipline. They weren't really respected within their own discipline. So when you observe that, and when you observe that virtually everyone who is forwarding the position that Jesus never existed are internet bloggers, then I would be stepping back and saying, you know, I think I see some red flags here. Maybe I ought to think about this a little bit more. And maybe they'll just say, well, oh, come on, you know, if it, even if it turns out that Jesus did exist after all, it's no big deal for me right now to think that he didn't. I mean, what harm? Well, the harm is, is not to anyone but yourself, because it would show that you're gullible. When I mean, scholars really look at Jesus deniers as mythicists to be on the, on the same level as conspiracy theorists who think that we never walked on the moon, that the Holocaust didn't occur, um, and, and these kinds of, of things. So it, it would mean if Jesus actually existed, 
and and you're falling for this, then that means you're gullible. And that could also mean that you have a tendency to go for these kind of conspiracy theories. It doesn't mean you're not intelligent. Uh, 22 years ago, there was the Church of Venus cult led by Marshall Applewhite. And um, there were some, I think 39 of his followers, uh, you know, some of them were very intelligent. They were engineers, but they were gullible and they paid a price for it. They paid with their life. So just be careful. Um, that's, that's what I would say to him. Great. Um, good stuff. Um, I really thank you for the time that you spent. Uh, we're going a little bit longer than I originally intended, but I wanted to get to the audience questions. And so thank you, uh, Dr. Lycone. Your, your website is risenjesus.com. People can go to his website. There's free resources on there as well as his YouTube channel. Just Google or, or look on YouTube for Mike Lycona. I actually have a link to his website in the video description as well. You guys can can check his stuff out. Um, and you also have a podcast and you have a bunch of books. And um, I, I think you're opening a theme park soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I could put a plug in for my school too, uh, Houston Baptist University, for anyone, I mean, we have programs, uh, Master of Arts in Theological Studies. We have a Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics. In fact, I think both of them can be done completely uh, from a distance, and we are fully accredited. Um, so we have some really good programs there. You could check them out. Awesome. Um, okay, so I think we'll call it a night. I have, I have a bunch more questions, you guys. I'm so sorry, but um, you know, if you go to risenjesus.com, you can actually send uh, messages to Mike that way. Um, and you can, you know, try to get questions, your questions answered. And I do encourage you, if you've been sucked into this stuff to learn how to do some more independent research, it is, it is surprising to me, like, okay, on a spiritual side to note how many people who are into this Jesus myth stuff are atheist agnostics. And I think it just makes it easy for you. If you can say Jesus didn't exist, I'm not confronted with really considering who he really was and what he really did. And I would, I would encourage you to stop and reconsider those things. Um, because uh, of who Jesus really is. So uh, thank you again. Anything else you want to say in parting words? Oh, thanks for having me on. God bless you, Mike. It's been a pleasure uh, spending a little bit of time with you and your guest. And, and they gave some good questions. And I thank even the skeptics for, uh, for, for good questions and for being collegial. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And we blocked all the mean ones. So. Oh. <laughs> All right. Yeah. God bless you guys. If you want to support this ministry, you can in the in the YouTube description below. I'm doing this, uh, producing this free content with your guys' support, and it's really working out by God's grace. So thank you so much. Take care.